0: Welcome to Follow the Thing, a podcast from the Mobile Medical Materials Research Group. Today, our guest is Stephanie Sotero. She's a lecturer in responses to climate crises at University of Manchester in the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute. In her research, she's interested in how medical supply chains are impacted by climate change. Stephanie, thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you. I'm very happy
0: to be here. So what's the material that you'll be telling the story of today?
1: Today I will be telling you about blood and specifically donated blood. Why do
0: we need this material and what's it used for?
1: Yeah, so blood is used on a, on a good day when things are working well in the human body. Blood travels through our bodies transporting oxygen, minerals, hormones and nutrients when donated blood comes into the picture it's a question of what's happened what's wrong with the body what's going what's going sideways so essentially when there is significant blood loss due to a traumatic injury such as a car crash or if a patient is going through an extensive surgery that might last multiple hours Or commonly, people who have given birth and suffer postpartum hemorrhaging. Also, blood is used for some cancer patients. So in some cases of cancer, platelet counts are very low. And this puts the patient at risk for extensive bleeding. And so um, donated platelets will be used for therapeutic purposes.
0: Okay, so produced.
1: So, when you donate blood, commonly give uh, about a half a liter of blood that ends up in a a bag of blood and uh, a few test tubes of blood. And when you donate that blood, it's kept cool and transported to a manufacturing facility where the bag of blood is essentially put in a centrifuge that looks like a washing machine and it's fun round and round, really fast for about 20 minutes. And that breaks the blood down into its component parts. So red blood cells, plasma, platelets, and the waste white blood cells. Uh, This is referred to as manufacturing blood. It's it's using blood that originates in human bodies, but that process is referred to as manufacturing blood. And so you get these four component parts, really just three, because one of them is white blood cells, and those are waste. And the, these three component parts, once they're outside the, like the cozy confines of your body, they need very special individual attention. So for example, the three components, red blood cells, plasma, and platelets need to be kept at different temperatures. So red blood cells are kept cool, plasma is frozen, and platelets thrive at room temperature. Um, but they need to be kept moving. And just to add complication on complication, not only do the three components need to be stored at different temperatures, but they have different expiry dates or shelf lives. So red blood cells last the longest at 42 days, while plasma and platelets last for about five days each. Um, So it adds this whole level of coordination and logistics within hospitals to ensure that they have the right stores of blood components. And that's not even getting into the different blood types.
0: I'm curious, why is it that white blood cells are waste?
1: So white blood cells, um, how do I answer this? Essentially, they, hmm, one way to think of them would be like the garbage collectors within your, okay. the the, the, the uh, how do you say it in the UK, like the bin men uh, of <laughs> yeah. the body. Um, So they do a lot of cleaning up. So for example, um, I right now have a cold and my body will have higher white blood cell levels because it's fighting this cold. Um, And um, once I've gotten rid of my cold, those white blood cell cell levels will decrease. Um, So essentially they they do a lot of the cleanup work um, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't make them desirable for use in therapeutic, for therapeutic
0: purposes. Oh, interesting. So how does the donated blood make its journey from that kind of production process to the end recipient? That's one of
1: the components uh, that I find most fascinating about this topic is just how dynamic and varied and geographically uh, diffuse the journey of blood can be from the point of donation to the point of care. So I thought I just donated blood and then it was whisked down the hall and and used by a patient, potentially even in the same building. And of course it's far more complex than that. Um, So if I donate blood, you've got that one bag of donated blood that is put in that washing machine centrifuge and broken into three component parts. Those three component parts then travel to three different locations and are transfused into three different patients, You know, potentially thousands of kilometers away from each other. This is just the manufacturing of the blood and the distribution of the blood, but a key component overlaying all of this is the safety of the blood. So when you go back to that point of donation, they take the bag of blood, but also some test tubes of blood. And those test tubes are sent to a testing center screened for various diseases. And then if uh, they are uh, given the green light, the bag of donated blood is released and its components are released into circulation. But for example, in Canada, big, big Canada, there are two, count them, one, two, testing facilities in all of Canada. So if I donate blood anywhere in Canada, it goes to one of these two two facilities. One is near Toronto and one is in Calgary. So that means that this journey, this act of donating blood has embedded within it thousands of kilometers just to get the blood tested. Nonetheless, to um, get the blood to the manufacturing center and then distributed to various hospitals.
0: So it seems like there's a lot of logistical complexity there, if there have to be blood stores that are marked and reserved and held until the testing is processed, and then they can release it. Can you tell us a bit about kind of how that complexity is organized?
1: Barcodes is the short answer. So each Bag of blood is given a sticker with a barcode and uh, as are the test tubes. Those are tracked throughout the process from the point of donation to the point of care. And they are validated numerous times to ensure not only that the blood is safe, but that, for example, it's the correct blood type, um, as there can be adverse uh, health impacts if you receive the wrong blood type. Barcodes supported by software for tracking all of that. Within Canada, it is possible to know where a given bag of blood is at a given time and how many days, I I say bag of blood, but I mean a component of the blood, like red blood cells or platelets. So where my donated platelets are and how many days they are from expiry. There's a system for redistributing the blood. So if my blood has been sitting on the, my red blood cells have been sitting on the shelf for 30 plus days at a given health center, and they're unused, then there's a system for putting them back into circulation and sending them to a higher use center, uh, like a capital city, where that blood then can have a much higher chance of being used uh, before it expires. There's very much a conscientiousness that people have given, that they have donated blood. The word precious is also often used. It's It's a precious gift. And there's a very highly attuned sensibility to to not wasting that blood. So there are systems for tracking and circulating and then recirculating blood to ensure that it's used and not wasted.
0: So if you have some components that only have a shelf life of five days, you have to do the testing, get the results, and then release it within the five-day period. And so I wonder are the samples for testing, are they traveling by air? Are they traveling kind of in the belly of commercial flights or how are they being moved around if, if there's such a, an urgency to get them to those two testing centers?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that appeals to me about this topic is just the, the number of transport modes Um, everything from me walking to make a blood donation to the use of airplanes um, and everything in between. Uh, So if I donate blood in Vancouver um, on a Monday, then those test tube samples, they're they're couriered to the airport and then put on a commercial flight from Vancouver to Calgary. The flight leaves at about 4 a.m. and would probably get into Calgary about 5 a.m., And then they are tested that day, the Tuesday, and the results are sent back to Vancouver. Also of interest to me is the impact, essentially the carbon footprint of these blood supply chains. So having these flights embeds uh, carbon intensive transport into the DNA of the blood um, and and into, into healthcare delivery. And it also raises questions that you know, if for some reason that flight was unable to take off, um, for example, due to severe weather, what knock-on effects would that have for the healthcare system?
0: I wanted to ask you about that because it see it's surprising that if you were to donate blood in Vancouver and you know the end recipient was also in a hospital in Vancouver, it's surprising the um, length of the journey and the kind of carbon-intensive nature of the journey that that blood goes on just to get between two people who might be, you know, less than a mile apart.
1: Exactly. Um, It's this kind of invisible, unseen, taken-for-granted mobilities, specifically medical mobilities, that I find really interesting. These are, um, you know, established infrastructural circuits um, that we don't Question or notice until they're disrupted. Also, just of note, um, of those test tubes being flown from Vancouver to Calgary, they're not just from Vancouver, they're from the whole Western region, so the province of British Columbia and the Yukon. It's an area of something like 1.7 million square kilometers. This huge catchment area where these test tubes are being collected and, and blood donations are being collected and then funneled to Calgary. The scale is quite astounding.
0: Is there a lot of work being done to make it a more decentralized process? Like to, for instance, in the Yukon, to enable more local testing facilities there that wouldn't necessitate that journey?
1: Not right now. In fact, there's a push both in Canada and the UK Um, to centralize blood donation facilities. Um, So, for example, in the UK, the number of blood manufacturing and blood testing facilities has gone from something like 10 each located across uh, England to um, two or three each. There's several pushes within this. One is um, efficiency, saving money. Um, Another is centralizing uh, very specialized equipment and personnel, um, into hubs of expertise. but there's a question and that's one of the questions that underlies my research is you know where is that sweet spot? Where is it where does it get too centralized so that the system is brittle and rigid and vulnerable to disruption, whether that be climate change or, or something else? Where is that happy point where you reach a balance between the expertise, the costs, and uh, resilience? I'm particularly interested in how severe weather events exacerbated by climate change impact um, these infrastructure networks. So for example, when I was conducting my field work in Vancouver, there was a a severe winter storm, but not particularly notable uh, for Canadians. But this storm resulted in the closure of three main roads connecting an interior city to Vancouver. Uh, these were the, th- the three main roads connecting these two cities. On one of these roads, there was a Canadian blood services vehicle carrying 90 bags of donated blood. And those bags could not make it to Vancouver within the regulated window. Uh, I think it's about 24 hours. And they had to be discarded. You know, it didn't make headlines or anything like that. But it's just one example of how severe weather can challenge these blood supply chains or blood mobilities. Another example is from here in the UK where there's one facility, it's a mega facility for, for processing, uh, manufacturing and testing blood. Of all the blood donated in the UK, 50% is manufactured at this site. It's about 65% is tested at this site. And it's also home to like the British Bone Marrow Registry, the International Blood Group Reference Laboratory, located in Filton, near Bristol, if you happen to know that, that part of the world. It's a very significant hub for blood donation, and it flooded in 2012. Thousands of blood products, there was risk of exposing very specialized equipment to water, All of that labor of manufacturing and testing that blood had to be redistributed to other uh, hubs. And the facility had to be drained, cleaned, and recertified in order to get back into use. From start to finish, that was about a two week process. And happily, it didn't result in any um, adverse patient outcomes. It was all handled behind the scenes but it just indicates the vulnerability of these uh, medical infrastructures to severe weather.
0: So as a researcher, how do you track this material when the journey is as complex as you've laid out?
1: So ideally, if I had my dream, I would be able to track the barcodes on on the bags of blood and the test tubes and I would be able to physically follow along a a given blood donation. But for many reasons, including privacy and safety, that is not permitted. So I had to create this patchwork approach to to follow that journey of a a blood bag from the point of donation to the point of care. Uh, And what that looked like was conducting interviews with health professionals, getting tours of facilities to understand how they work And uh, using document review for an organization like Canadian Blood Services, there's um, quite a surprising number of documents that detail the processes and statistics related to the process. And so all three of those things together helped create a picture of what this journey looked like.
0: You've already mentioned this a bit when you spoke about the example in British Columbia when those roads were closed and and the blood products were expired and destroyed, but can you tell us a bit more about what happens if the material doesn't get to the patient or if it gets there too late?
1: Blood is a (laughs) life-saving material Um, and so if someone has been in a car crash and cannot get the blood that they need, um, their their life chances decrease significantly. And in fact, there's a long history of blood transfusion. It started with experiments between transfusing blood from one animal to another, and then from one animal to a human, all with very poor success rates, it should be noted. Um, But there was one of the first successful human-to-human transfusions took place in London in the 1800s, and it was organized by a physician who um, was concerned about the number of his patients who died after childbirth due to blood loss. And so he um, organized what would have been like a vein to vein transfusion of blood from a husband to a wife um, with the idea of um, um, uh, restoring her blood levels. I think he tried this about 10 times during the course of his career and it was successful about five times. This was all before they knew about blood types. So it was, uh, they were really shooting in the dark that they, they were transfusing, transfusing one person um, to another person who had compatible blood types. But um, this physician's concern was the number of patients he lost in childbirth. Um, this was, was and is still in many parts of the world a very real concern if you don't have blood on hand. And interestingly, 200 years later, uh, there's a private um, uh, tech startup based out of California called Zipline, and they're operating drones in Rwanda to transport blood uh, from more urban centers to more rural centers. But one of the justifications that they've used is to assist women who are are suffering uh, postpartum hemorrhaging. So the justification for these experiments and the use of blood have been both been, have been justified um, uh, uh, by uh, loss of life um, due to childbirth.
0: Sorry, my, my office neighbor is opening and shutting his door very, very loudly. I'm just gonna pause while he takes care of this. So what do you think is the future of this material?
1: So there's so many possible futures for blood, um, some that have dystopic or, or utopic elements. Um, so for example, at the University of Edinburgh, they're experimenting with creating synthetic blood so that blood donations don't have to re- rely on what is supplied by humans who choose to donate. Um, as I mentioned in uh, companies like Zipline are experimenting with delivering blood via drones, so transforming the the, the transportation underpinnings um, for blood. And then um, of most interest to me is climate change and how will increasing severe weather events transform um, blood donation, and this is beyond just um, delivery. For example, um, with a warmer climate, West Nile virus is now endemic in parts of Europe where it wasn't before. And so uh, uh, blood services need to test for the presence or absence of West Nile virus in donated blood. Um, And then once that blood is donated, can it get from point A to point B testing and manufacturing in a timely, reliable way? And how will this be um, impacted by whether it's um, heat waves or um, flooding or severe storms? And what kind of resilience is there within the system um, for responding to this type of disruption?
0: How many years off do you think synthetic blood is? That's a good
1: question. I know there have been experiments with it. Um, I get the sense that it is still some way off, but I am not, I don't follow that particular path very closely. Um, A more um, recent change, just uh, that's less, Far flung in some respects is changes to policies at, um, whereby men who have sex with other men can now donate blood more readily in certain um, countries than they have been able to do um, in many decades. Um, and so that that's something that's changing in the course of um, months um, uh, in places like Canada and the UK.
0: Maybe this isn't relevant for the podcast, but it makes me think about the work by Gavin Brown that we read about um, viral loads and detectability. And it made me wonder if someone who's HIV positive, but with an undetectable viral load donates blood, but then the recipient isn't on a kind of like viral suppression medication, what's the implication of that? I wonder, I don't know, maybe that's just a hypothetical. That's such a
1: good question. I have no idea what the answer is, but that's one of the things that's um, wonderful about this Mobile Medical Materials Working Group is making yeah. the connections between different materials, um, the, the interfaces and the connections that I would yes. never think to make of um, on my own. Yeah, so thanks for raising that question. We can ask Gavin. <laughs>
0: um, well, I wonder, are there any, Questions that you want to revisit or anything we should come back to?
1: I think, I think we covered everything. I think my main point, the point that I find most interesting about uh, this work and um, that I want others to take away is that these medical supply chains are surprisingly complex, and um, we tend to take them for granted until they are disrupted. And so it is. Wait, let me
0: that- let me ask you. Let me like ask that so we you can answer it in a podcasty way because I think I didn't really set that up very well.
1: Really? Um, um,
0: okay, so before we conclude, what are the final messages that you'd like to leave listeners with?
1: So the final point that I want to leave people with, and this is what I find most interesting about this topic, is that blood supply chains uh, specifically and medical supply chains generally are um, surprisingly dynamic and complex and spatially um, dispersed. And that we, we tend to take them, um, especially in high income contexts, we tend to take them for granted until they are disrupted. And um, as the climate emergency um, grows in strength. Um, it is in our interest to ask questions about where particular medical products originate and how they get to the point of care and what um, our governments are doing to ensure um, ensure that those uh, medical supply chains um, are viable.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much for being with us today. And I hope all the listeners have found this um, an enjoyable podcast to listen to. Um, Please listen to the rest of our series. We have um, interviews on other interesting medical materials by researchers working on these topics. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Sydney. You have been listening to Follow the Thing, In each episode of this series, we follow a medical material from production to patient. For more episodes, please visit the Mobile Medical Materials Research Group website. The link is in the show notes.